Welcome to the Both Arts Photography podcast, which is hosted by Natalie Brio and Alan Brio. And in this podcast, we are going to talk about the importance of attending a workshop with us and why learning during a workshop is very different from learning on your own or learning with a book or learning by just going in the film by yourself. Because in our workshops, we don't just take you to locations, we also teach you how to do what we do. Well, I think that's good because... I have people that call us regularly that uh, the question that they want to know is, do we actually teach during the field photography workshops or are we just basically tour guides and, you know, take people from place to place to place? And the fact is that we are far from being tour guides. In fact, being tour guides is not our goal at all. Our goal is to be teachers of photography during the workshops, which means during the field work during the time that we photograph and as a matter of fact we don't only photograph during the workshops we also have lectures we have print reviews we have presentations we have a lot of activities that are really teaching and learning oriented yes and as a matter of fact we both have a degree in art we teach photography on the foundation of the arts and we have also been trained as teachers you have taught at the university level for many years you taught the first digital photography class at Michigan Technological University, I think, was it 1993? Yeah, I think so. It was so cutting edge that uh, Harper and Collins, I remember, printed your syllabus. Yeah, which is quite remarkable because syllabus are not normally published. (laughs) They are taken by students (laughs) and put on the bottom drawer and never read again. (laughs) Except when when the exams are. (laughs) Yeah, for finals, you dig out the syllabus and you check carefully what are the requirements to get a grade. But otherwise, nobody pays much attention to it. But anyway, moving on. Yes, I taught uh, photography um, at the college level. I also taught a lot of English classes and a lot of technical writing classes. And I also took a lot of classes on how to teach. That is, I learned how to teach. I was trained as a teacher. That was supposed to be my career. I was supposed to be a professor in uh, some university and I decided that academia was not for me and uh, I wanted to move on to being in charge of my own destiny as opposed to having a university in charge of my destiny and uh, sell photography and then as time went by and I started being very successful selling my work I realized that I also had now time to teach workshops and to uh, take one-on-one students and this is how our workshop and consulting program came about. Yeah, I remember at the Grand Canyon when we were selling that you had many requests for to teach workshops. There were a lot of people that were really interested in taking workshops with you and also learning how to photograph. Yes, and uh, the problem is that I did not have the time to teach because we were so busy selling my work. Well, you didn't even have the time to take pictures. I did not have time to do anything except sell photographs at the end. I would print, sell and then ship photographs. That had been in our lives. Yes. You know, print the photograph, sell the photograph, ship the photograph, and then go all over again and start printing, selling, and shipping again. And, of course, we made changers because we were doing volume, and now we do quality instead of quantity. So we've made tremendous change in our business, uh, which we talk about in other podcasts and, of course, in my marketing uh, mastery workshop on DVD, which talks about how to sell your work so that you make a profit and uh, not just uh, run around like crazy like we did. But uh, those changes have resulted in us having more time 
to teach workshops and to do other things. So we don't just send photographs, uh, print photographs and ship photographs. We also teach workshops and, uh, you know, we also have a life, <laughs> by the way. And on your side, you were also trained as a teacher, right? Yes. Uh, my major was art and then uh, my minor was education. So I was certified to teach uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. Which you did for how long and where? Uh, eight years on the Navajo <clears throat> Reservation at Chinle Junior High School. And it was a wonderful experience because art is um, a very important part of a lot of Native American cultures. And so they weren't cutting the art budget. Um, you know, I pretty much had an, an open budget. Anything I asked for, I pretty much got for the students as far as materials and supplies. I just remember one time my principal said, you know, you're cutting it pretty close. And I said, well, you know, in that case, I'll just go to Title IX or, you know, one of the other titles because, you know, they're Native American children, so I could finance it in another way if I needed to. Right, which gave you the experience of teaching art in a serious environment, an environment where art was valued and not just something that people could do without. Oh, it's valued very much because each of my students had at least one family member that was making their living off of doing art. So art was very real to them, you know, as far as making a living from art, creating art, selling art, and just living off of it. Right. It's true that in most uh, Navajo families, there is at least one person, uh, either a man or a woman, who is an artist. And in many occasions, a well-known artist or a successful artist. Yes, that's true. And uh, it's not very well known because the world of uh, Navajo art is fairly, uh, let's say, limited to people that are interested in that. You know, we don't find it uh, in the big uh, museums all that much. But there is some very high-quality art and there is some very famous Navajo artists. Well, R.C. Gorman, you may find, you know, some of his art in, mm. in some of the bigger museums. Right. He's the most famous of the Navajo artists. Yes. Uh, he actually did so well that he started collecting Picassos and other artists. And as we know, most... Uh, Picasso paintings are worth a small fortune. You know, that's true. I totally forgot about that. So it's, uh, it's, you know, it's like, how do you measure the success of an artist? Well, I always say this. Look at what they have. Yes. Don't, don't just listen to what they say, because most of them will just say things that are exaggerated, to say the least. Just look at what they have. I mean, he collected Picassos, and we're not talking reproductions. We're talking originals. And go ahead and try to build a collection of Picassos. You know, most likely... Um, if you can find one for sale, for one. Right. Well, you will if you look long and hard. You have to go to auctions. You have to go to Christie's. Uh, but, you know, you have to be ready to mortgage your house, and it better be a big one. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that will be just a down payment. <laughs> right? So, you know, very successful Navajo artist, which means that the students have an inspiration, right? And actually, you have an interesting story when you ask them about Van Gogh, right? And what was uh, his first name or... And one of, one of them's... Uh, oh, I was asking, I wanted, the answer was, you know, Vincent Van Gogh and one... What was the question? ...student, uh, well, I showed a, uh, you know, a, a painting. We, I think we were doing, um, you know, Impressionism, or I was teaching, a, <clears throat> teaching about that, and so I think we were doing an assignment, and I think I was just showing, you know, reproductions in the classroom. A lot of art teachers have those, you know... Um, 
you know, large pictures of reproduction paintings, which aren't that great. But anyway, I think it was a starry night or something, you know, something very familiar, you know, with most uh, American students, maybe not so much on the reservation because they don't really study a lot of, you know, European art and artists. And so I think I had a starry night and um, I just wanted to know who the artist was. And I remember one shy Navajo student asked me, Mrs. Brio, because I gave the first name. I finally said it's Vincent, you know. And I was saying, Vincent Van, you know. And then one student said, is it Vincent Van Gorman? And I just thought that was so cute. Yeah, because for him, R.C. Gorman was the big artist. Exactly. It wasn't Vincent Van Gogh. It was... You know, Vincent Van Gorman. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know, they were relating it to right. the names that of, they know, that they know from their culture, from their exactly. people. So it's important that in their culture they have famous artists. Yes, because otherwise they can't really relate to our culture. Well, and when I was teaching art, I would also say, "Okay, which one of you is going to be the next R.C. Gorman?" And they would just smile and giggle, you know. But I said, "It's got to be one of you. Come on." Which one is it going to be? You know, and because uh, I wanted to plant that little seed, right. you know. Yeah, and even though they're shy, they, you do put the bug in their ear, so to speak. Yes. And a few of them might later on say, you know, I, I want to become like Arcee Gorman. Oh, right? definitely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's something important because Arcee Gorman paints the Navajo culture. Yes. Or painted the Navajo culture because he passed away. But he painted Canyon de Shea. He painted a lot of Navajo women. He painted a lot of uh, scenes of the reservation. Yes, he did. And, and in a very positive manner. That is, it doesn't show the poverty. It doesn't show the, the unemployment and all of the social problems. It shows only the beauty of the place. And, and that's also very important. It is very important. Because you have, it gives them a positive image of their culture. And that's also very, very important. Because we focus on the positive. And that, I think, is one of the characteristics of the workshops. Is, you know, we photograph the beauty of nature. And we try to point out to, uh, you know, how we can reproduce that beauty. How we can photograph it and print it and make it a fine art piece. Exactly. And to, and to make people feel better, that when our audience, you know, looks at our images and our photographs, that it makes them feel good. You know? Right. It, so that if you have a bad day and you look at one of the photographs that I create or the workshop participants create, it makes your day better. It makes yeah. you think that there is hope, yeah, <laughs> right? But also there's a lot of happy memories. That's right. You know, uh, a lot of them... A lot of the participants become very close. They become and, friends. Uh, they become and friends. a lot of them want to exchange emails. And uh, usually after a workshop, if everybody's okay with it, we send everyone uh, the email addresses from everybody in the group. And we can stay in touch. Yeah. And yeah. I also encourage them to take yeah. photographs of each other during the right. workshop. Because right. the one thing photographers do not have is photographs of them working in the field. Right. Because we're always taking photos of things and we're never taking photos of us. Exactly. On this last workshop, on the Eastern Sierra Mono Lake workshop, I think there were some photographs uh, that the participants have ta took taken of one another mm -hmm. that are really nice. One I took one of you and Roger, which is great. Oh, yeah. And we are and waiting sun, for one it of... It was just after sunrise. The lighting was just great. Yeah, well, because it was sunrise and the light was just right. But also we are waiting for one of you and Roger in the snow, right? 
Yeah, yeah, we're waiting for that. And it was really That's exciting because Roger is in a wheelchair and uh, he made it to 11,000 feet, you know, to photograph the bristle cones in the snow, wheeling around. And we did not think that was possible. And I was telling you, he is one of the very few people in a wheelchair that made it that high and went around <laughs> photographing those trees, you know. And then we went for a sunrise at Mono Lake. And, you know, this is fantastic because these are experiences that you can't duplicate. I mean, these are just things that you have to experience personally to, to really know what it's about. And it's exciting. I mean, yeah. it was exciting for him, but it was exciting for us. It was. It was because, like, I, you know, it was a different experience for, for you yeah. and I as well. But also uh, he posted that picture on Facebook and said, I was really there. Yeah. You know? Right, and we all feel that way. I mean, we, we're all really there, and, and it's meaningful for all of us for different reasons. It is. Um, so one of the things that we do during the workshops is we use my two books, Mastering Landscape Photography and Mastering Photography Composition, uh, Inspiration, and Personal Style as textbooks. Yes. And one of the things that you want to do is go over some of the chapters that we talk about during the workshops, right? Yes. During the workshops, I point out different chapters. I don't have your first book in front of me right this second, but I know in your first book, Mastering Landscape Photography, you had a chapter on composition, and those were mostly the traditional rules of composition. But in your second book, Mastering Photographic Composition, Creativity, and Personal Style, you have other composition, I don't know if you call them techniques, other composition... Well, I used a different approach to composition in the second book because I did not want to go over the same rules, which are the fundamental rules. So I go over uh, rules using light, using color, uh, using contrast, uh, black and white versus color. And one of the things that's really nice about the second book is that I use illustrations of locations, I use photographs of locations that we do visit during the workshops, which I did not do in the first one, because the first one was a, a collection of uh, essays published on the internet that was published as a book after it was published on the internet, while the second book was written with the purpose of creating a textbook for the workshops, in part. I mean, it's more than that, but it's also a textbook for the workshops. And so I thought that it would be nice to use photographs of locations that we visit during specific workshops. And so we can show to the participants when we are on the location what you know you can do with that scene by showing the photographs in the book, which is very helpful. Because one of the hardest things to do in photography is visualize a scene in front of us as something entirely different than what we see, right? Right. And and the difficulty is that for a lot of people, until you have developed the skills to visualize in your mind what something can look like in a completely different way than what it is now, is you can't do it. And so the photograph in the book say basically, okay, this is what we see right here, right now, and this is how I made it, and this is how it also can be made. Right? Yes, well, what I like about the, the second book is we just got back from the Eastern Sierra Mono Lake workshop, but you had compositions that you were showing of places that we were going to go to, but also later in the book, after 
we get back home and we start working in our studio, you have examples of like the bristlecone pine trees, how you printed it. Right. Which is interesting because not only do we you know talk about the composition in the field when we're there at those locations, but also the book shows examples of how you printed certain images mm-hmm. that we visited. And so it's a, you know, they can use this textbook. It's not just a field textbook. It's both field and studio textbook. And it's, it's before. Just Wonderful. Yeah, it's basically useful before, during, and after the workshop. Exactly. And, you know, why use a textbook during a workshop? For the same exact reason that we use a textbook during a class, you know, or several textbooks. I mean, I've never attended a class at the university. I didn't go to high school here, but I went to high school in France. But I did not use, I did not attend a high school class or any class for that matter since I started going to school where we did not have a textbook. We've always had textbooks. And so when I started teaching workshops, I was looking at the other instructors, and they don't use textbooks. And I was like, you know, I mean, I suppose a few do, but the ones that I was in contact with do not. And for the majority, they don't, uh, as far as I can tell. And I started thinking, you know, there's something wrong here. Because where is the point of reference? Where is the text, right? Right. Well, what we started doing in the beginning is we made copies. And handouts. And, and handouts and syllabus. And we give them to the participants. And we still do this for the syllabus. And we still do this for... The skills enhancement exercises. Right. Anything that's not in the book. The viewfinder. The viewfinder. You know, all these things that, you know, we can't include in the book because they are either too, you know, they are objects. They are not pages. And also they are too new, right? But the, the thing that struck me is the importance of having a book. Because you can't talk, talk, talk and expect everybody to remember everything you say. It's too much. On average, people remember only a percentage of what you say, right? Right. And so the book, to me, is crucial to teaching a workshop. It is. And also during the print (coughs) reviews, it is very helpful. When you look at uh, somebody's photograph and maybe, you know, they're from Alaska, so they have a blue color cast or something. You know, there's a color Mm -hmm. cast in your uh, print maladies print maladies chapter 16 in your second book it is wonderful that we can just turn to a page and show the color cast and what is wrong Uh, and they can see you know the before the malady and Mm. then they can also see the remedy right in other words this is the issue of your work and this is how you fix it and that's it. You know, it's very quick and very simple. Because sometimes, I know during the print review, when you tell them what the malady is, they, um, they have trouble visualizing what the remedy would potentially look like. Yeah. And that's well, where the book really helps. Well, they have a hard time visualizing the problem. Otherwise, they would have fixed it. If we knew what is wrong with our work, we would have fixed it. So if you come to a workshop and you have a print that has one or several issues, it's obviously because you don't know what the issues are. Otherwise, you would fix it, right? So first of all, the book allows you to visualize the issue. And then it allows you to visualize the solution. Yes. And all you have to do is apply the solution and the the cure has been performed, that is, the malady has been taken care of. And I call it print maladies because it's a non-loaded term, that is, malady is not a term that has a negative connotation, like if I used instead the word disease or the word, um, you know, problem. Those are loaded terms that point to something serious. Malady is something, you know, benign. That can be fixed. That can be fixed, And, and that's the whole idea. And I like the word malady because it's memorable. People remember you know, it's something that's not used very commonly. And what I also really like about the, 
you know, color casts, whether it's local or global all over the image, is how you show the curves or the recipes that you used in Photoshop to correct the color casts. Right. Where the problem was. And so this really helps in the studio once they come back. You know, they listen to what you have said about the prints. Mm -hmm. But when they go home and even during the print review, they can look at this and start thinking about how, how to reprint that image. Mm-hmm. So that you get rid of those uh, maladies and and, right. and know how to fix them when you get home. Because yeah, because the whole problem of teaching is keeping in mind that only a small percentage of what you teach is retained by students. And so what we're trying to do is maximize how much we are going to retain. And of course, we have students at all different levels. We have some that are just beginning. We have some that are very advanced. And then we have some in between. Well, and and so the, the question is, who do you teach? Well, you can't just teach to the advanced or to the beginning or to the intermediate, you have to teach to everybody. And so the book allows us to basically say, okay, if you're at this level, read the introduction, read chapter one, start at the beginning. If you're more advanced, then go for this section, which is more into, you know, what uh, you need to be studying at this point. You don't have to go back to the beginning. We also cover in the book the technical and the artistic. And and that's one of the foundations of our teachings, that we teach photography fine art photography, as being both an art and a technique. Yes. And the book covers both aspects. We have the artistic aspects, and then we have the technical aspects. And so somebody, and we had this during our last workshop, that has a very strong technical foundation, but realizes that they need to focus more on the artistic aspect, can just focus on the artistic sections of the book and and do the exercises and improve from that perspective. Oh, it's wonderful. It's chapter 15 (coughs) of your second book. And what I really like is you have the field checklist for the technical aspects. So everything that you need to do in the field is listed. And not everybody's going to be working on the same technical aspects, but I just love how you have, you know, select the proper f-stop, expose correctly, you know, level and secure your tripod. Which would be for the beginner, right? Right. As we talked. And then for the more advanced student, we have things that go much further than that. Yes. And then I also really like the artistic aspects, Uh, looking at the color palette in the field or deciding on a color palette right there and then as you're creating the image. Not when you go back home in your studio, you're making these decisions in the field. Because if you did not see the color in the field, you're not going to remember the color in the studio. What you're going to do is look at your photograph and look at the colors in the photograph. But as we know, the camera does not record the colors as we see them. And so, you know, another one of the unique aspects of our teaching is that we teach photography, like I said, both as a technical and an artistic endeavor, fine art photography, that is. Uh, the reason for that is because you cannot do a fine art without having some artistic content in there. Otherwise, it's not an art, right? But one of the things that's very unique about what you do, uh, what we do, is that we have brought to our artistic teaching some of the concepts of paintings. Because for, uh, until very recently, actually, I'd be as bold as to say until I started teaching photography, photography was taught almost purely from a technical perspective. And words like color palette, words like inspiration, words like fracture, and other words that are really coming from the domain of painting were not used at all in photography. Yeah. And it's very difficult to create a very unique color scheme in a photograph if you don't understand the concept of palette. 
Right. Exactly. And it's very difficult to create a unique style if you don't understand the concept of fa fracture. You know, so we go over what this means. We, we talk about it. Uh, we don't just say we teach photography as an art and a technique. We do teach photography as an art and a technique. And we have the knowledge of what it, what it takes. Because I studied the technique of photography you know, since I started in 1980. But I've studied art from much older than that, so from when you know, I was about five. So we have both of these knowledges. And that's very important. Right, and using the correct <coughs> vocabulary. The vocabulary is very important. The um, you know, how can you understand something and practice something and use something if you don't have a word for it? Right. I mean, you know, if we just say I drove a car, well, you know what? That's very, very, very vague, right? But if you say, you know, I drive a two-door coupe, that's a whole lot more precise. It right? is. <laughs> you know. And 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 we can visualize yeah. it yeah. too. Because and it's, it's more. Still, it's right. not so ambiguous. Yeah, and to me, it's way more attractive than a four-door SUV. <laughs> but that's personal, you know. You yeah. know. Well, I would yeah. have to agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, because we, we really need vocabulary to describe what we do. You know, when we sell, there is a vocabulary of selling. There is a, a, a marketing and salesmanship vocabulary that we teach students and that we use when I sell my work. Well, that's and without I that vocabulary, you cannot possibly achieve the selling results that we achieve because it's, it's largely based on the vocabulary. And when we photograph as artists, we have to have an, an artistic vocabulary. Otherwise, how do you expect somebody else to understand what you're doing? Well, that's what I find so interesting about the Hopi language is the fact that they use descriptive words, you know, at, for the words. So if they have the Hopi word, I don't know what the Hopi word for peas, sweet peas would be, but, you know, the descriptions as they tack it on to the word mm -hmm. would be those little, round, green mm -hmm. peas. Because it's a visual language. Yes. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. A lot of native cultures have visual languages because they don't... We approach language, and this is completely besides photography, but we approach language as being a symbolic action uh, and as being basically... Um, a sign. That is, our words are signs. That is, if we'd say, for example, this is a chair, right? There's nothing in the word chair that describes a chair. Exactly. If somebody does not know what a chair is, and you say, go get me the chair, the person might come back with a picnic basket. Because there's nothing in the word chair that describes the chair. We don't have a visual language. The Hopis have a visual language. I don't know what the word for chair is in Hopi, but like you say, it might be the wooden thing with four legs and a back. And somebody that doesn't know what a chair is and is told in Hopi, go get me the, f the thing made of wood that four, has four legs and a back and we you sit, sit on, on you know, they are not going to come back with a picnic basket. <laughs> because you cannot sit in a picnic basket. It doesn't have four legs and it doesn't have a back and it's not made of wood. Exactly. Right? They are going to bring back most likely a chair. And if they are strong, they might bring back a couch. <laughs> right, but they will have to be very strong. Otherwise, are, so that's the difference. And so, you know, Native American usually are very visual people. They are. And that's why they are good in the visual arts, because yes. they speak in a visual manner, they think in a visual manner, and when it comes down to drawing or painting or photography or sculpting, they just do what they thought. Yes. It's they, in their head. They understand the art concepts. That's right, because they, art concepts are for, are for the most part visual. One of the problems and one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about during our workshops is visual, the visual domain. I tell people, say, I photograph this, and I say, well, what attracted you? Say, I liked it. Well, that's great. You know, they liked it. I like a lot of things, but they don't all photograph well. Right. 
I like certain things because they smell good. I like other things because they have a great sound. I like certain things because they, they feel good. great. You know, I mean, I, I like being outdoor in the forest during the summer because it smells like sap. Yes. It's very quiet. Uh, the colors are fantastic during the day. It's relaxing. I feel wonderful. But you, you know what? You hear the wind in the trees. Exactly. I can feel the, the, the warm wind on my skin. But you know what? So far, there hasn't been a single visual thing here. And if I take a photo of it, it's going to be horrendous because it's not visual. Right. And one of the things we have to, to teach, which is a, one of the fundamental things, is you got to pay attention to the visual. Yeah. What if do there you want is, to express? Right, if there is nothing I- visually interesting in the scene, it doesn't matter how great it feels or sounds or smells or any of the other five senses. Uh, because we're not going to see it in a photo, because a photo is basically 100% visual. A photo doesn't smell like anything, doesn't taste like anything. I mean, I would not recommend eating a photo, you know. Uh, it doesn't have any feeling like warm or cold. Um, you know, it's all visual, you know. And so y- you have to sort of abstract all the senses except the visual sense. And that's one thing that's really, really difficult and has to be done in person. You have to train yourself and you have to have somebody that says, okay, what's visual about this? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you see here? I'm not talking about what you hear, feel, and and smell and all of that, what do you see, right? And most of the time, people are at a loss because they realize that so far, they haven't seen, mm-hmm. you know. They've been experiencing the world with all the senses, which is totally normal. Right. And then now you have to abstract all of the senses except the sense of sight. And, and then not only that, but it's not just what we see. It's also that it has to have shapes, form, depth that is translated into a flat photograph. Shadows. Shadows. Yeah. Because, of course, we see with two eyes and the camera's only one. Right. You have to recreate that depth. You have to recreate reality. Yes. And you have to take it as a point of departure that a photograph is not real. You know, what's real is reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, art is not real. And, and so, you know, we go over all of this and more. And, and, uh, well, what I like about our workshops, too, is that we really focus on the practical. We don't discuss all the different types of light. We're going to discuss the light that's right in front of us right now. We're going to discuss the type of light it is, how to photograph this type of light, the advantages mm-hmm. of using this type of light, you know, composing with this type of light. And I think that's important. You know, if it's not an overcast day and it's not raining or snowing, we don't really need to discuss it right now. Right. Well, we are not going to learn how to do that because the conditions it's are not gonna there. It's just going to go, yeah. you know, yeah. you're going to listen to it, but then you're going to mm. forget about it. I think during the workshops, uh, you know, we want them mm. to be able to use tangible things and, you know, use and learn right then and right there. Yeah, use what's there. Learn how to work with what's there. But also, I think it teaches the participants also to be opportunistic. You have to be opportunistic. wherever you go, whatever location that you're photographing, you're there when it's sunny, cloudy, you know, and that, you know, you can't change nature. Yeah, I mean, something that I've learned uh, in my path through photography is to become the great opportunist. I mean, I'm a great opportunist. I'm a fantastic opportunist because when it comes to photography, not for everything in my life, of course, but when it comes to photography, because I've learned that if you keep thinking, for example, I wish this would happen, you miss all of the opportunities that are offered to you right here and right now because you're not seeing them. What you're seeing is what you don't have. 
Okay, and we have no control over nature. Nature does, and we photograph. That's basically what it is. We have no control over that. What we have control over is our attitude regarding what nature does. Mm -hmm. You know, how we're going to photograph it, and whether we're going to take advantage of it or not. And I never find a scene that I don't like. Why? Because that's the best way to be the great opportunist. You know, I take a photo of whatever is given to me. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time it works. Yes. Because I'm inspired by nature. I'm not inspired by, uh, you know, specific things that I want to have. I, I went through that. You know, I used to walk around thinking, okay, I want to have this photo. I want to have that photo. And over time, I think either I got them all or I realized some of them, I, you know, I did not get or I did not want. But now... I'm excited what's going to come next that I've never thought of. And I'm starting to get photographs that are totally unique because I'm no longer trying to be somebody else or trying to find something that I've seen. I'm trying to capture what's given to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is the one attitude that's the best, but also the hardest because we, so, we are so tempted to desire recreating the photos that we've seen, the great photos that we've seen. Well, that's another thing that we try to you know, get them to start thinking about is developing a personal style during the workshops. It's something, the concept that we want them to start thinking about, you know, no one is going to develop a personal style in the short time that we are together, five days. But to get them thinking about it and looking at your work and the other work of other artists, it... Um, you have to it start helps. somewhere. Yes. I mean, obviously, a personal style is going to take years to develop. And one of the main qualities that you can have to develop a personal style is perseverance. That is persevering, continuing to work on it, even though you're not seeing results immediately. I mean, it took me years to develop a personal style. And there are some serious hurdles to get over. You know, nobody starts with, uh, uh, you know, all that we need to, to get there, we have to learn along the way. But uh, the first thing to understand is that it can't be a personal style if it is not personal. Right. There has to be your personality in your work in order for your work to become personal and to have a personal style. And the, the, the big problem that most people have in developing a personal style, and we hear that a lot, is they want it to be personal but we don't want it to be too personal. <laughs> and it's either personal or not. Either you have a personality or you don't. That's as simple as that. Nobody has 45% personality and 55% something else. Well, I think that's uh, what really helped you and I both living on the Navajo reservation is that they wanted you to be yourself. They yeah. want you to be yourself. They want you to do your own artwork. They want you to try new things. There's no judgments. There's no ugly art or wrong art or, or there's any art. of that. There's, there's just art. There's yeah. just art. Because you know? the Navajos are non-judgmental. It is a non-judgmental culture. So instead of saying like we do, oh, this one's bad and that one's good, they'll say, well, this one is different or this one is going into the wrong way, but they'll get back and then they'll be better. You know? Exactly. Um, you don't carry a judgment. You look at people for what they're doing and they might be going this way or they might be going that way, but that's just a path of life. And you can stray and that's okay. You know, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you temporarily going in in the wrong direction 
And so, you know, as an artist, you know, very often in our culture, we are victim of all the negative connotations that are attached to the word art mm -hmm. and to the word artist. And some of them include, you know, starving artists, which we know is not true. I mean, we are artists and we are far from starving, um, very far from that. Uh, the word artsy-fartsy, well, you know, I mean, associating art and, you know, farting it doesn't make art look good. Well, I know my dad would always joke around telling people I was taking underwater basket weaving in right. college. Which, by what the way, what classes are you yeah. taking? Oh, she's taking yeah. underwater. We, basket and I took weaving. it, and I tell you, it is it, <laughs> not not only is it hard to weave a basket. Now try to weave it underwater. <laughs> That's one of the hardest classes I've taken. Actually, I'd, I'd be as bold <laughs> as to say that it is maybe the hardest classes. You know, uh, and then of course, tr try weaving a basket underwater and have it hold its shape. <laughs> Right, so, you know, I'm not sure what the metaphor stands for, but it suddenly points to the fact that this is one heck of a tough class. But anyway, all of these connotations point to the fact that art has a negative image in our culture. You know, starving artists, artsy-fartsy. If you do art, you're going to die. You know, you're never going to make a living. You can't make a, a career out of art. You know, art is for losers. I mean, all of that. And we have to get over all of that, and we did, but we also teach our students how to get over all of this so that they can create art. Because you can't create art if you think that art is bad, right? And you can't be an artist if you think that artist is something bad, right? Well, I think our goals during the workshop, I know, uh, well, we focus on composition and light because that's mm -hmm. what we're in the field together. And then uh, we like to get them start thinking about personal style. But also, we really want to help them individually as well to get to the next level right i know we do that a lot as well so there's and i used to do that when i taught art you know you go to the level that each person's at and you know you help them get to the next level and of course in our workshops we do have people at different levels but we help them all of them you know go to the next level and give them things that they need to work on or goals or mm -hmm. start thinking about a project or maybe you should do a portfolio or, you know. Or get a better tripod or get a ball head instead of a, another more simple type of head or some gear, you know. I mean, for Something some of them, it, the goal is to create a portfolio. For others, it's to get a better tripod, right, yes. or a better camera or a bigger flashcard or whatever, you know, a bag that, that holds their equipment as opposed to a knapsack, right? Um, and also, a very important fact is that there is two of us. Yes. So our groups is. are small, you know, maximum 12 people. We have a number of workshops where we only have six people. These are more limited workshops. And I'm constantly moving back and forth, and you do too. Right. How's and we it going? And we yeah. divide the group in two. I mean, we don't really say, okay, I take those three and you take those three. But, you know, each of us has one half of the group, which means that in a small group of six, we have three participants each. And in a, in a larger group of 12, which is not very large, we have six participants each. And that's a very small number. Oh, what is and most workshops are taught by single instructors. Yes. I mean, I could not envision teaching a workshop by myself. I think I'd go berserk. Uh, you know, pr no, not only do you have to take care of all gr the group, the whole group by yourself, but also one person has to take care of the instruction and the logistics at the same time. Right. And that's a very difficult aspect of workshops because there's really two different aspects. We think we go to a workshop to learn, but as instructors, we know that something that takes a lot of our time during workshop is the logistics. Right. Oh, definitely. And, and that's where we have the most questions. 
We unfortunately have more questions about where we're going to eat, where we're going to sleep, and where the bathroom is than we do about how do I create an artistic photograph. But that's, you know, that's part of running a workshop. People have to ha know what we're going to do next, you know. But the way we do it is you take care of the, the logistics. Yes. And I take care of the artistic. That's how we put it. And that divides the workload in half. Mm -hmm. For each of us, because you can just focus on logistic and on answering logistic questions, you know, that is organization related questions. And I focus on answering photography, uh, art, art and technique related questions. Mm -hmm. And also, it just works really well with us because I'm also looking at my watch, seeing how much time, you know, before sunset. I need to make sure that, you know, I get everybody to each location at right. the correct time so that we don't miss a sunrise and we and we don't miss a sunset which I is mean, easy that's to also do also important yeah which is easy to do because you know if it was left to me alone running the workshop and doing your job on top of my job i think we would photograph all day long we would never take a bathroom break and we'd oh, probably no. never eat we would go back <laughs> to the pass hotel out. pass out and then wake up a few <laughs> hours later and do it again and people would probably just kill me or something well, because we I'm, I'm really a pleasant experience well, for everybody. And, and you make it that and and i do too but you know because i'm so driven towards getting the shot i know my obsession would be the photograph yes. with no regard for anything else and so you bring a sense of balance in the equation where you're like okay <laughs> you know we do need to get the photo but we also have to use the bathroom we do have to eat and we do have to sleep and we do have to take breaks exactly we do need to break and we do yeah. need to sleep. You can't be on 24 hours a day. You know? No, yeah. Which, you can't be creative 24 hours right. a day. Yeah. But you can try, <laughs> which is what I do, right? So it's a good sense of balance. It is. And, and it works out great because I bring the motivation of getting the great photographs, uh, which we get. And you bring the necessity of taking care of uh, you know, all the other aspects of our lives. What I like also during the workshops is when you do a debriefing each morning and you know after breakfast and you say okay you know what worked this morning what didn't work this morning you know you have any questions you know so that we can help them and uh, right right you know for the next shoot yeah and it's important because to me one of the things that's the most one of the most important in attending a class and a workshop is a class is not to leave the seminar, the workshop, the class with a question. That is, at the end of the, the event, I want to make sure that I'm not leaving the event with a question in my mind. That's one of my goals when I take classes. And so I want to pass that along to our students, that we don't want to leave the workshop with any question remaining unanswered. And so every morning after we photograph sunrise, usually after breakfast, yes. we usually photograph sunrise, have breakfast, and then we meet, and that's when I do the debriefing. I ask everybody, is there any question about what we shot this morning or any comments on what worked, what did not work? You know, and everybody has a chance to ask anything that they want, either related to the shoot or things that came up, uh, you know, since the last time we talked, basically. Right. Sometimes it's just when they're doing near-far compositions, where exactly do you focus? I know that's a number one yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, the have. questions range from everywhere, from how do you use a histogram to how do I develop a personal style, how do I market my work? I mean, I think anything goes. It's, you know, we do appreciate that people ask questions relating to the focus of the workshop. I mean, I'm not going to give a course on marketing if we study light and composition. Or printing. Or on printing if we study personal style. But, you know, we are willing to answer, you know... Uh, 
unrelated questions, you know, briefly, basically, and, and talk about it, you know, as, as much as we can. I mean, we have limited times, of course. Meal times work very well, too. Yeah, the workshop is not only taking photographs and being out there in the field. It's also everything else around the workshop. And a lot of teaching takes place during meals, during breaks, and, and so on. It's an enjoyable time. It's for, a great time. For, for us and for the participants, because you and I love what we do. Yeah, if you don't love what you do, then people that you do it with aren't going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're bored by what you do, they are going to be bored with the whole thing because, you know, you don't bring any passion to it. Right. And, and we bring a lot of passion into it, and we, we like this, and we like teaching, and we I like talking. Sharing. We love sharing. It's all about sharing. I, I don't believe in hoarding information. No. I believe that information should be shared. And the reason why I believe that is because information that's not shared is information that is lost. Exactly. And especially today in the digital age, something that was extremely valuable as far as information is concerned a year ago may have no value today whatsoever because we've moved on. It's already outdated. And so it's even more important than before to share information and to share it very soon after you acquire it. And yeah. I share everything that I have. I, I don't have any secrets. Uh, if uh, you know we are supposed to compete, and I don't know that we are, I'd rather compete on the basis of the quality of the photograph and the beauty of the photograph and the personal aspect of the photograph, the personal style, than because I know how to do this and that and the other person doesn't. Right. I, I think that's ridiculous. Let, let's even out the film. Right. Where do you buy your plastic bags? Yeah. <laughs> that's when we started sending our work. Tell us. The, yeah. <laughs> The other artists were looking at us and saying, you know, it took me 10 years to find out where to, where to buy your plastic bag, so it will be the same Clear for you. Clearbags.com. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You go, you know, it's like, so, so then, you know, eventually you find out where to buy the bag, and then you find out where to buy something else. And they're like, oh, my God, that's nice. What did you get? They say, well, you remember about the plastic bags? You know, screw you, right? So it doesn't foster a positive environment. You no. Know? Because if you share, people will share. Exactly. And eventually, as teachers, we know that the more you give, the more, the more you get. Yes. You know? And, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I can say for sure that it does work. It and does. I, I come back teaching things that I've never taught before with ideas I've never had before for more teaching. And so you just become more and more knowledgeable and it leads to another book, it leads to another tutorial, it leads to another workshop, and the whole thing becomes better and better. But I also think that we reflect a lot on how we can teach concepts better too after we have each to. workshop. Yeah, we and have I think to. that's what teachers yeah. do. Being Naturally. A, being a teacher is, is, is being somebody who reflects on your teaching. Yes. Uh, we spent a lot of time with the teachers that I had. You know, T.D. Warnock, for example, asked us to keep a journal when I studied how to be a teacher. You know, we had a class for graduate teaching assistants, right, which we had to attend. It was a required class during the master's program. And we had to keep a journal on reflections on the teaching. Mm -hmm. I forgot what the journal was, but it was a, a, reflect, a teaching reflections journal. Right. And we would write in the journal what we thought about teaching. Today I did this and it worked, so I'll do more of it. Today I did this, it did not work, so I need to change that. Right. Or how could you, we, I, we had how could you this, teach better? Yes. Yeah. How can you teach yeah. this concept better? Right. We, we had to do that. I mean, the, the bottom time. line to me, and I don't mean to say that to put down anybody, but I think it's a fact, is anybody can teach a workshop. But the fact is that not everybody can teach something during the workshop. That is, anybody can say, listen, I'm teaching a workshop, but actually in practice, few instructors actually teach anything during workshops. They just take people to places and they let them to photograph things.
I mean, we teach. We have a teaching background. We have two textbooks. We have syllabus. We have handouts. We have a complete detailed list of everything we're going to do during the workshop, meeting time, places. I mean, we make it as complete and detailed as we can. I mean, this is not something that's done, you know, just like that. No, it's, and it comes from me and you writing lesson plans. I mean, right. when you write lesson plans mm -hmm. and you have to show them to your principal or, mm -hmm. you know, in your case, your committee or whatever. You the, know, chair. the chair. <laughs> the chair. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, they look at all of that. Well, in my know? case... At the, you had to show it for one whole semester. What are you teaching this whole semester? At the graduate level, you get your master's and your PhD or not, based yeah. on that. You know, your teaching counts. Right. You know? And uh, how do you write a syllabus? You're not born with that knowledge. No. I mean, why do we have a syllabus in our classrooms, in our workshops? Because we learn how to write a syllabus. And a syllabus is very important because it defines the goal of the class, the goals of the workshop. And the expectations. The expectation and what we are going to do. Yes. It, de it defines what we're going to do, the goals, and how we're going to reach this goal, and what we're going to do to get these goals, and what else we can do afterwards. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, I wouldn't dream of teaching anything without a syllabus. I mean, you know, and I've attended workshops where not only did we get no syllabus, we got nothing, no handout, you know. And then, of course, we heard horror stories, like somebody told me during the last workshop, uh, after he said that the workshop was great, that we attended a workshop in which the first thing that the teacher said is, uh, and I quote, when I'm in the field of photography, don't you come bother me. Uh-oh. And I said, that's a no-no. That's, that's incredible. No, that's I mean, you know, when I photograph in the field, because I do photograph during workshops, I mean, how can you be out there in the middle of beautiful scenery with great light and not take a photo? That, that you know, I couldn't do it, sorry. Uh, but if somebody comes to me and says, I don't have a question... I'll answer the question. Right. I mean, I, I'm a professional. I can photograph and answer questions at the same time. I may not be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, <laughs> but I can photograph and answer questions at the same time. But remember, yes, I can. remember when R.C. Uh, Gorman was doing that interview? That's and right. he was doing a painting and somebody was and, interviewing him at yeah. the same time. And they said, how can, you, how can you paint and answer my questions at the same time? And he said, well, that's the difference between a professional and an amateur. Yeah. And I'm yeah. a professional. Because they call for different parts of the brain. Yes. You know, photography, any sort of creative uh, activity is the creative side of the brain. Answering question is the technical side of the brain. You can use both halves, you know, at the same time for different purposes. Right. So I can answer a question. You know, if somebody says, and then, of course, my, my work, what I'm doing when I'm, when I'm taking a photo is directly related to the questions I'm being asked. Like if I'm taking a photo... And I'm exposing an ISO 100 at F16 for half a second. And somebody says, what kind of exposure should I use? Well, you know what? Why don't you use the same as me? If it works for me, I'm sure it's going to work for you. So ISO 100, half of a second at F16, and you're good. Well, ah. that's what I love oh. about our workshops is that you're so open. When you're photographing, you encourage them to come see your display on the back of your camera. Come, come look at what I'm doing, you know. And you also you know, walk around and ask them, hey, how's it going? You know, what sure. do you, let me look at what you're doing. Let and me you look, look through their doing. viewfinder. And, and I make them. suggestions. And you make yeah. suggestions. And some, you know, everybody has a different working style. Some participants want to work totally on their own. And some would like a lot of feedback and a lot of help in the field, which is also what we provide based on, you know, the needs of each individual. Exactly. And also everybody has different difficulties that yes. they are facing. For some of them, the difficulties are very simple. For the difficulties are more complex, but we have the experience, you know, and uh, we can help all of them. And so, 
definitely, yes, you can ask questions when I photograph, and no, I'm not going to, you know, kill you if you do. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, there is instructors that obviously uh, don't have that approach, and uh, that's unfortunate. So I think we covered quite a bit of ground about how we run our workshops and, uh, you know, what we teach. and uh, How we teach. How we teach and where we come from. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, um, and if you want to have fun, learn a lot and make some great friends. Join us. Join us, yeah. definitely. And the list of workshops on the site. Uh, we have uh, some openings. and uh, We look you forward to seeing you. Yeah, if you have any questions, email yeah. us. And uh, I think it's something that everybody should try. I mean, I for the longest time when I uh, studied photography, I never considered workshops. And then one day uh, I had somebody invite me in a workshop and I went and I thought, my God, this is something that I should have done a long time ago. Because I realized that there's a complete different experience to photographing with a group of people that are there to study compared to photographing on your own. When you photograph on your own, you only know what you knew when you walked in. But when you photograph with other people, you have no idea what you're going to learn because everybody has something different to contribute. And now you're not just trying to sharpen the skills that you acquired before the workshop. You're learning new skills right there and then. Yes. And you can't learn it from just reading and you can't learn it from just watching videos or from reading magazines or looking at photos. You have to learn it from watching other people do what they do. I mean, for a lot of people, and we know that because they tell us, watching me work is inspirational. Well, they also learn from each other. And they learn from each other. Yes. They watch each other, learn from each other. The print reviews... You know, looking at everybody's work is also a, a great learning the, the experience. Print, yeah. the they print learn a reviews, lot yeah. during the print reviews. It's definitely one of the highlights. But also just looking at what everybody does and what everybody has as equipment. I mean, I see an enormous amount of gear and I continuously see things that I've never seen. Mm-hmm. Because everybody brings something different, you know. Oh, yeah. There's so much variety well, out there. Well, we see every, yeah. uh, every yeah. one of us sees differently. Right. Yeah. You know. The equipment we use and the photograph we take, you, you, you don't know how much you miss not watching other people work yeah. because there's a wealth of information right then and then. And, of course, you can't do that with a complete stranger because they think you're stalking them. Well, you and I, <laughs> I know, but you and I know how important it is as artists to hang out with other artists. I mean, we have friends that are right. artists that we hang out with because it's uh, very important. You have to take advice from people who are where you want to be. Don't ask somebody who doesn't know what they're doing how to do something because they're going to tell you how to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, every profession has support groups, and photographers are one of the few professions or the few hobbies where you know we work a lot on our own. Yeah, and that I think is one of the mistakes we've made. And I've made that mistake for a long time. You have to join a group, and and the workshops are the perfect group mm-hmm. to join because these are people that are like-minded, that like a particular style. I mean, that love photography, that love photography, yes. who probably have the same very, equipment you do, and a high level of motivation. Yes. And people who come to our workshop come because they like what I do. Yes. So, you know, you select your instructor by finding somebody who is doing something that you like. Right. You know, uh, if you don't like photographing, uh, you know, machinery, then you go and go with a photographer that photographs machinery, right? And if you like to photograph landscapes, you go with a photographer that likes to photograph landscapes. So all of these are just, you know, very important things uh, to consider. And uh, 
you know, I, I hope we all see you soon on one of our workshops. Yeah, and I take care of logistics. So if you have any questions, just call <laughs> me or email me because I, I'm the one that does all the scheduling and the planning of the workshops. Yeah, Natalie so, at Beautiful. Accommodations, anything you need, airports. <laughs> I know the closest airports. Exactly. Yeah, any, you know, all, all information related questions, send them to Natalie. Natalie at beautiful-landscape.com. And anything that's artistic, send it to me, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> at beautiful-landscape.com. Yes, because anything logistics that you send email to Alan, he'll email it to me. I forwarded it to Natalie, <laughs> so you might as well send it straight to her. Uh, and uh, no, but you know, this is uh, this is uh, we're very, being silly. Yeah, but it has been a fun <laughs> podcast. You know, you know, you have to have fun, right? Yes, this has do. been a fun podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you soon on another Bozans Photography podcast, which uh, I think will be on how to practice photography as an art form. Oh, nice! Yeah, yes, I'm looking uh, forward to it. That's right; it's going to be a great one. So, see you soon, and uh, have a great day. Bye. <laughs>